Good morning. Please turn your Bibles to James chapter 1. Uh, James 1 will be our text this morning. A couple weeks ago, we took a trip to Oklahoma. On our way back from Georgia to Oklahoma, uh, we stopped at a gas station. And Rachel had Luke off in the restroom, and I had Sam with me, and I was getting coffee. Uh, And while I'm pouring my coffee, Sam was doing what four-year-olds are very good at, which is asking questions. Hey, Dad, do you like coffee? Dad, why is your cup brown? Dad, is that a lot of coffee? Dad, are you going to get a lid? Dad, can we get some candy? Okay, it's this constant stream of questions. Okay, and while this is going on, there's a guy standing there, an older man, and he's looking at Sam and me, and he's just grinning because it's just cute, right? This little four-year-old asking all these questions. Okay, and Sam looks at this man, sees that he is smiling at him, and at this, my cute little four-year-old goes stone-cold savage, looks right in this man's eyes, and he says, hey, what are you looking at? So a little while later, uh, Sam and I had a nice long conversation about how if you're going to pick fights with men at gas stations, make sure they're smaller than daddy, right? There's a, that's important. Hey, truthfully, I tell you the story this morning uh, because as I go through the process of being a father to my sons, as I'm trying to raise my children, I get these constant reminders that they're not there yet, Okay. There's still a lot of immaturity in my children, okay, which is appropriate at four and eight, right? Okay, they're kids. They're going to make mistakes. They say stupid things. They mess stuff up. There's actually a pile of applesauce on the floor right over there. Uh, don't tell David Palmer. He's not here this morning. Okay, why? Because they're kids. They do things that are immature. Okay, and I'm okay with that to a certain extent, so long as we are on a path towards a day when they will become mature adults. Okay, in other words, I'm not all that worried about Sam saying, what are you looking at at four? I would be much more concerned if he was exhibiting that same kind of behavior at 24, right? My goal as a dad is I'm trying to teach my sons maturity. All right, James says in our text this morning, in a very similar way, our goal as Christians walking the path of discipleship is maturity. What we are attaining to, what we are trying to get to as followers of Jesus, we are trying to become mature. All right, notice starting in verse 2. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. To a certain extent, just at face value, this text makes a lot of sense. He says, trials lead us to perseverance. Perseverance then leads us to maturity. So if our ultimate goal as Christians is we're longing to be mature then the trials that we handle properly are really a good thing because they lead us to maturity. Fair enough? That all works? That makes sense? All right, so why, though, does he say that we are supposed to consider it pure joy to face trials of many kinds? Okay, why doesn't he just say, okay, keep your chin up or just soldier on or kind of like going through a good workout. It might hurt right now, but you know it's ultimately going to be for your benefit. No, he doesn't say it like that. He says, consider it pure joy 
which seems to me to be quite a bit harder. All right, I have another Sam story for you this morning. Uh, Luke gets the day off for illustration purposes. Hey, but just the other day, I had both boys in the bathtub, um, and I was giving them their bath, and I got Luke out first, and I took Luke to his room to get him dried off and dressed and ready for bed, and I left Sam in the bathtub for all of about a minute and a half by himself, okay? Don't get ahead of me, all right? All right, while I'm attending to Luke and getting him ready for bed, I hear Rachel in the kitchen, which is just underneath the bathtub, and she goes, David, what is that sound? Okay. She could hear dripping, which is not a good thing at all. Okay, so I run back into the bathroom, and I see that Sam is bailing water out of the bathtub like he's trying to keep the Titanic from sinking. All right, For all he is worth, he is shoveling water out of the bathtub, and now I have a very large water spot on my kitchen ceiling. Okay? I think that qualifies as a trial. Fair enough? I can also tell you with complete confidence, I did not consider it pure joy. All right, in the grand scheme of things, uh, that's a relatively minor trial. It's purely cosmetic damage, and it's just a house. At the end of the day, it doesn't really make that big a difference in my life. Okay, but how many of you, if you're going through a trial like that, you think, oh boy, this is exciting, this is joyous, I get to go through a trial today. Okay, anybody, any of you approach your trials like that, any of you following James' advice? Nobody's following the advice of, of James, brother of Jesus, okay, just checking, making sure I'm not alone. Okay, I am not ever excited uh, when my sons do things like that and give me a chance to display patience and perseverance, Right, now, let's make it more serious, okay, because all of us, I think, in this room have gone through things more significant than a water spot on the ceiling. How many of you, when you go through real trials and tribulations, things that actually matter to your life, are able to consider those trials pure joy? Hey, I guarantee you that when we found out that Luke would need multiple open heart surgeries just to have a shot at life, we didn't for a moment consider that joyful in any way, shape, or form. Okay, I guarantee you that when the church we were at in Texas started having some pretty intense conflict and we thought that church might split, we didn't consider that joy. Okay, so while I get that going through some things might make me stronger, might make me more mature in the long run, that God lets some trials come into my life so that I can mature spiritually, What does it even mean for us as followers of Jesus to consider our trials pure joy? Is that a fair question? All right, a couple thoughts on this. Here's number one. If you're taking notes, write this down. That is that we consider trials joy because a trial means that we're doing something meaningful. We consider trials joy because the trials mean that we're doing something that actually matters. As we read our text this morning, uh, keep in mind who James is writing this to. Remember what we talked about last week. This letter is addressed to the people of God scattered amongst all the nations. And why are these people of God scattered? Okay, they're scattered because they started in Jerusalem, but very shortly after they started, they, under, they underwent severe persecution. 
Okay, guys like Paul were trying to kill all of the Christians, and so they scattered all these nations around them. Okay, the trials that they are enduring here are not caused by misbehaving children. Okay, this is not talking about things like, oh, I have a bad diagnosis from the doctor, or oh, I went through some natural disaster. Okay, I don't think those are the kinds of trials that James is talking about at all. I think the trials they are enduring are a direct result of the testing of your faith, like he talked about in verse 3. Okay, the Christians James is writing to are facing trials because they are Christians living out their faith in a world that loves darkness more than light. Okay, when we go through trials for our faith, that is evidence to us that our faith is actually worth something. We are doing something that matters. So if we're doing something that matters and then we face trials, we can rejoice because the trial shows us what we're doing actually matters. All right, Rachel would never tell you this, uh, but back when I first started pursuing her, there was another young man who desperately wanted her affections. And I vividly remember, after I took Rachel out on our very first date, I think it was the very next day, this other young man approached me, and in no uncertain terms, he told me that I needed to back off. Okay. She was already spoken for. Now, much to his disappointment, I didn't back off. Okay, but why did he react so strongly against me? Okay, why did he feel the need to approach me and tell me to quit pursuing her? Okay, it's because I was a direct threat to what he wanted. Okay, if he didn't see me as a threat, if he saw me as someone who she would never be interested in anyway, he wouldn't have bothered approaching me. He wouldn't have bothered even messing with me at all. But he saw me as a threat to what he wanted, and so he told me to... Leave her alone. All right, here's my point. You only get opposition if you're doing something meaningful. Okay, the world does not care. Satan does not care if we spend a bunch of money, build a big building for ourselves, and engage in private worship for an hour a week. Okay, nobody cares. That is not a threat to anybody. Nobody will ever oppose it. But if we start living out our faith daily if we start actually sharing the gospel with people around us, if we, start, if we start taking stands against injustice, if we refuse to take part in the brokenness and the hurt around us, okay, well then that's a threat to the world and we will face opposition for that. Okay, so if we're enduring trials because of our faith, we consider it joy because that means that we are actually following Jesus. And I think very clearly one of the ways that we can judge whether we're actually following Jesus or not is by asking, who are our opponents? Okay, if you don't have any opponents, if the world doesn't care that you're a Christian, then are you really doing anything worthwhile with your faith? Does that work? All right. I see about six people nodding along. Okay. I can work with that. That's fine. Verse 5. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. All right, it may seem like James has switched to a new topic in verse 5, but I think he's actually continuing right from verse 4, what he just finished saying. Okay, and we need to remind ourselves what is wisdom, because wisdom is very different than intelligence. 
Okay, the Bible tells us numerous times that wisdom is the ability to choose what's right. Okay, it's not the same as your IQ. Right? There's a lot of very smart people in the world who have very low wisdom. Right? So how does wisdom connect to trials and to developing maturity? And I think that James is telling us wisdom is what we display when we properly handle our trials and adversities. Okay, if we want to ultimately become mature, we have to develop wisdom. How do, we ha- how do we show our wisdom? Well, when stuff happens to you, how do you react? That will display the amount of wisdom that you actually have. All right, Wednesday morning of this week, it was raining, and I was late leaving the house to take Luke to school. Right, and so I knew it was going to be close. Right? And if I don't get Luke dropped off by 8.45, then I have to turn the car around back to the parking lot, go park, take Luke out of the car, walk through the rain up to the front office, check him in with the lady at the front desk, and then walk back through the rain back to my car. Also, when I sign him in at the office, I have to fill out a little form saying, why is your kid late? Okay, and there's no box on that form for I blame my wife. Okay? And I know this because the last time he was late, I was looking for the box that said, how do I just blame my wife for this? Okay, but that box isn't on there. So I was really trying to make it there before 8.45. Okay, and so as soon as I pulled out of the neighborhood onto the longest stretch of road that I have to take to get Luke to school, I immediately get stuck behind a guy who insists on traveling 5 to 10 miles an hour below the speed limit, and there is nobody in front of him. Okay. He was there just to spite me. Okay, now, normally, I'm a very nice, I'm a very dispassionate driver. I'm not often guilty of excessive displays of emotion when I'm in the car. I know some of you can't drive at all without displaying all of your emotion, but that's not usually, you know who you are, right? That's not usually me. Okay, usually, I'm a very calm driver. I'm pretty chill. You're not usually going anywhere in Atlanta anyway, so you might as well relax, right? But as we were crawling down the street, and as the minutes are ticking away, I decided that the driver ahead of me needed some verbal encouragement. I might have made a few judgments about his intelligence, about his character, about his need to drive elsewhere, about what college football team he probably roots for. And all of this verbal encouragement, which I, I gave it a pretty good volume, Uh, did absolutely nothing to improve his driving. And just so you know, the rest of the story, we made it to school just in time, in spite of the bad driver. Now, okay, I tell you that long, uh, involved story uh, because I like to say, I'm a pleasant driver. The only time I ever yell at other drivers is in extraordinary circumstances, 95% of the time, I am a very pleasant, calm, chill driver. It's only that 5% of my life where other drivers are driving like morons that I feel the need to exclaim to them and tell them that they're driving like morons. You feel me? Okay. All right, all of you of driving age are like, yeah, we know exactly what you're talking about. That's right. Okay, so I would like to say I'm normally a pleasant driver. Normally, I don't act that way. But I'm pretty sure that James would say that it's in the extraordinary circumstances of life that you get to see who you really are. In other words, anybody can be a pleasant driver when circumstances are ideal. 
It's how do you handle Atlanta traffic that reveals the real you. So here's number two if you're taking notes. And that is that trials demonstrate your level of wisdom maturity. Okay, your character is not revealed in how you handle life when the road is easy. You get to see what your character really is when you go through adversity and trials. Right? This is the book of Job. Right? Of course Job is awesome. His life is awesome. The test is, how will he react when we strip everything away? Okay? When we take everything away from Job, that's when we get to see who Job really is. Okay, this is the same story of, of Peter disowning Jesus, right? It was mere hours after he just said, Lord, I will never deny you. They better put up another cross next to you for me. I'm going to stand by your side. A few hours later, he's saying, I've never seen that man before in my life. Okay, which one of those is the real Peter? Okay, the real Peter is the one that we get to see when the rubber really meets the road, whenever the Roman soldiers are really there ready to string him up, Right? Your true character is revealed in how you handle adversity. James says if we're going to live a life of faith in such a way that actually matters, then we're going to face opposition. If we're going to face opposition, then we need wisdom in order to handle that opposition with maturity. So, if we plan on following Jesus, a regular feature of our prayer life needs to be asking God for wisdom. My first question for us this morning was, are you living out your faith in such a way that the world will even care? My second question is, are we regularly praying to God for an increase in wisdom to handle it? All right, notice how James ends this section, verse 6. He says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. All right, here's number three. And finally, it says, Our faith in the character of God gives us confidence to ask for wisdom. All right, our faith in the character of God gives us confidence to ask for wisdom. Uh, whenever we were in Oklahoma a couple weeks ago, I uh, visited my mother. She was there in the hospital for a few days while we were there. Um, and so she was on some drugs. And one thing is, if you want to know what someone really thinks of something, put them on some drugs, and then they'll tell you what they really think. Right? Okay. I'm not saying I recommend that you do that just for the purposes of finding out what people really think. I'm just saying, if you have a loved one who's in the hospital on drugs, that's when you can ask them all the real questions, and they'll tell you the truth. Fair enough? Okay, so my mother says to me on the very first day that I'm there, she says to me, she says, the extra weight that you're carrying makes your face look better. Thanks, Mom. Okay, she just insulted me a couple, three different ways, and so I told her, I was like, Mom, that's pretty insulting. And she says, no, I meant that as a compliment, son. You look good. Okay, now, obviously, I look good, all right, but, okay, why do I believe that even though my mother said something that was pretty insulting, why do I believe that she actually intended it as a compliment? Okay, the reason I believe my mother when she says she intended that as a compliment is because I know her character. Okay, in other words, my dad might insult me and enjoy it, right? But my mom doesn't do that. 
Okay, my mom loves me. She loves me unconditionally. She would never say anything with the intent to hurt me, right? Because I know my mother. I know that she loves me unconditionally. I know that my mom always has my best interests in mind, which is more than I can say for the rest of you, right? All right, I tell you all of that to say that James says that if we truly understand the character of God, if we truly understand that God always loves us, loves us unconditionally, would never want to hurt us, always wants what's best for us, if we really understand God's character, if we understood his desire to see us mature in our faith, then we would pray regularly for wisdom and we would do it with confidence because we know that our God loves us and wants to give it to us. He says, don't be like the waves of the sea who have no control over where they go. Okay, don't be double-minded. Have faith in the character of God. Pray regularly for wisdom. Okay, then whenever we do face trials because of our faith, we can handle those trials with confidence because we have wisdom from God and because we know that we're doing something meaningful and we know that we're on a path towards maturity. Okay, again, to James, faith is always practical. Okay, faith, truly walking the path of discipleship, is not about what we do for an hour or so as we gather to worship. To James, faith is what we do every day of our lives. Are we on that path to maturity? Are we on that path to wisdom? Are we truly following God Almighty with our heart, mind, soul, and strength? We need to be a people of faith. All right, at this point in our service, we're going to sing a few verses of an invitation song. Uh, during the singing of this song, I will be down front. One of our shepherds will be down front. Uh, during this song, this is a time where we as the church want to be for you. If we can study scripture with you, if we can pray for you, uh, if we can tell you more about what it means to be a Christian, uh, now is the time for us as the church uh, to serve you. And before we sing that song, I'd like to close us with a word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. If you have a need, come now while we stand and while we sing.